extend Christian greetings to each one this morning. Enjoyed the service. I think it's important to try as best as we're able to, to understand and to even articulate the idea of the Trinity. So thank you for um, taking a taking us into a study of that. One of the things I am very thankful for is that of the heritage that I had, and probably many of us had, that I grew up never questioning the idea of the Trinity. I couldn't tell you how it was, but that was just simply accepted. And I think that's valuable. I would like to see my children growing up and just to simply accept the fact that the people all around me, they believe this. It has been a long heritage of a belief and that they don't begin questioning or too often we kind of destroy the whole foundation rather than taking what was there and building on it. So thank you. Talking about rowing a boat, there's a lot of analogies we get to it. I had never rowed a canoe until I was probably 21 years old, 20 years old, just before I got married. The young fellows that I was friends with said we're going to upstate to a cabin, Pine Creek, and we're going to go canoeing. Probably not the best idea for us. Uh, a little bit unrestrained and immature. And But anyhow, long story short is we got in this canoe and it just divvied out that the two, uh, the gentleman that was with me, the young man that was with me, he didn't know how to row a canoe any better than I did and soon find out that there is some expertise that is good if you're going to row a canoe and especially this was like I think May and the water was high Pine Creek was running strong and so we were the last in the row and we finally got onto it good enough that we could pretty much keep up with the rest but we didn't Consider the fact that downstream there was an island right in the center. Some of the water went to the right, some of the water went to the left. <laughs> we were not prepared for it. I didn't know how to handle the current, and uh, we went sideways into the island. <laughs> Dumped upside down, and the canoe took off without the men, without us too, and so we ended up running I estimate probably almost a half a mile to catch up to our canoe while the rest of them caught it. But we went a while, so it was cold. The water was cold. But thankfully, by running, we warmed up. But uh, I think there's a lot of analogies to that, too. Two people just getting in a canoe and just rowing it. You do need to have some kind of an idea of what you're doing. <clears throat> in the Pathway Reader... I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with that. There is a story, and the story goes like this. A little Johnny, I'm just giving him that name. I'm not sure exactly what his name was, but he's laying on the floor, and he's trying to do his geography lesson. And you can hear him mumbling. He's uh, looking at a big word that he didn't know how to say. It was a mountain in Mexico. And finally... In his frustration, he said to Dad, who was sitting in a chair right next, why would they ever name a mountain in Mexico a name, a word that's so complicated that nobody can say it? And his dad told him, well, come here. And so his dad pronounced it for him. And his dad took the opportunity to say, you know, there's a little two-letter word that's really hard to say. Johnny was like, what? Two-letter word? Hard to say? Well, my little brother, who just learned to walk, he can say two-letter words. Well, Dad said, there's this little word, no. It's really hard to say. And, of course, Johnny didn't understand that. But Dad said, you think about it. <clears throat> Next morning on the way to school, the boys were all excited as they ran down the road because they were going right past Mr. Miller's pond. And it was the first cold night of the winter. And there was ice forming on the pond. 
Now, Johnny knew that his dad always said, you need two cold nights before it's fit to go on the pond. But the excitement was in the air, and the way home, some of the boys decided they're going to go check the ice. And, of course, Johnny went with. And it was firm enough that they started scooting around on the edge. Johnny knew you don't go on the ice until there's two cold nights. Well, after a while, they started poking fun at Johnny since he was the only one who stood on the bank. They called him Chicken. Oh, Johnny's scared. If the ice would crack, it would scare him. And after a bit of that mocking, it got to Johnny, and Johnny was going to prove that he's not scared. And so he ran faster and farther than any other boys. And guess what happened? The ice broke. And Johnny fell in the water. Thankfully, Mr. Miller was already on his way down to the pond to warn the boys to get off the pond. The ice isn't fit. And so he quickly pulled a board off of the board fence and rescued Johnny. That night after Johnny was warm and his dry clothes on, his dad came to him and asked him, do you remember that conversation we had last night? That little word, no, can be so hard. We have an account in Matthew where there was a group of growing men who found saying the right thing to be really hard. They knew the truth. They knew the answer. They knew the right thing to say. But they considered the cost of admitting what they knew too great and so they didn't turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. I have been for quite a while working my way through Matthew and I decided I'll just take our next portion of scripture here for you all. Matthew chapter 21, we're reading verses 23 to 32. And as we read this, consider this idea of there are some things that are just really hard to say or to admit. Matthew 21, verse 23, And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Whence was it? From heaven or of men? They reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as the prophet. They answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. He said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, the first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, Let the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when you had seen it, repented not afterward that you might believe him. Verse 32 here would give the credence to the fact that these men, though at first they did not believe John, somewhere along the line, they knew who John was. They knew John was sent. And by believing John would have gave credence to the fact 
of who Jesus was. It seems at some point they believed, but they were not willing to admit it, or else they apostatized from the idea. Because if they believed John, then logically they would have to believe Jesus. So they come to Jesus and they say, by what authority do you, do you teach? Who gave you this authority? At this time, uh, at the synagogue, the Sanhedrin gave you the authority to speak. You didn't speak unless they gave you the authority. And so you have, like when Jesus went into the temple there in John, early on, that after words, they asked him if he has anything to say, and he got up and he spoke. We have illustrations where the Apostle Paul went into the temple, and they would have asked him, men and brethren, do you have anything to say? So there was this thing of giving permission in the synagogue. So, the fact is, he didn't need permission, because he was Jesus Christ. One place, in Matthew 12, he says, but I say unto you, that in this place there is one greater than the temple. And so he didn't need permission from them, and they wouldn't have been asking him permission, or asking why he took this authority upon himself, if they would have really acknowledged or admitted to the reality that he was the Son of God. So he did not need permission by the Jewish Sanhedrin. So they asked this question, not because they did not know, but because they refused to acknowledge. Now that wouldn't have been so hard. The witness was all there. Jesus said, if you don't want to believe me, then believe me for the very work's sake. So the witness was all there. And they shouldn't have been trying to, they wouldn't have needed to ask this question, but they were refusing to acknowledge. And so Jesus therefore proceeds to show them that they knew, and so to compel them to the necessity of exposing their unwillingness to confess. I think it's really interesting that these men, some of these men, not all of them, some of these men held on to this thing and fought against this thing to the very end. If you go back to Matthew chapter 28, I'm just amazed. Matthew 28, after Jesus rose from the dead, in verse 11, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave Large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. These men desperately hung on. That they're not going to accept Jesus as the Christ, even to a point after he undeniably rose from the grave. They said, here, we're going to pay you off. This is what you say. Take the money, and this is what you say. It's just amazing how stubborn human mankind can be. Do the same thing, and continue to do the same thing, even... When it's so obvious. Okay, so they had this question thrown to them by Jesus, um, who was John. And they knew better. They knew better than to say that John was not of God. They knew better. I mean, these men should have known. They're the ones who studied the Old Testament. Because even Herod, who slew John, trembled at the name of this holy uh, man of God that God sent. The rulers, from political motives, deserted John, but with all the ranks of the common people, even the publicans and the harlots. 
There was a deep feeling within them that John was a messenger from God. But these other men, who were the chief priests and elders, they denied it. They feared the people, as Herod did before them. And actually, if we were to read in Luke chapter 20, verse 6, where it gives this account, they were not going to answer Jesus what they wanted to answer because they were afraid they would get stoned. Okay. It here, then Jesus says, neither will I answer thee. Oh, they answer. Let me find those words. Neither tell you by what authority. Oh, excuse me. And they answered Jesus, we cannot tell. We cannot tell. They didn't say, we don't know. They were a little careful with that, apparently. We cannot tell. Actually, in the Greek, um, it would almost give the idea that they would have said, we know not. So they may have been further over on that side than, or gave that answer than what they really were. They should have said, we know but we're not willing to confess. That's what they should have said. If they really would have not known and inquired with a true desire to know the truth, Jesus would have told them. But I believe here we have a bunch of people who were just stubborn. They knew the truth, but they were resisting the truth. One of the reasons I believe we can Except the fact that they knew is if you go to John chapter 3, where Nicodemus came to Jesus, verses 1 and 2, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So here we have Nicodemus using the plural, we know, we know, and the we must most likely the uh, rest of the Sanhedrin. We know you are a teacher come from God. Okay, so we have Jesus responding, neither tell I you. He simply exposes their obstinacy to themselves and leaves them to reflect upon it and to aid them in reflecting upon their obstinacy. He told him this little story about a man that had two sons. He said to the first one that he should go. He said he won't go. He won't obey. But after a while, he thought about it. And in the end, he went. The next one said, I go, but never went. And so Jesus uses the illustration that the Jewish people who should have known, who did know, who were the people of God, they were the ones to say, we're the followers of God. In the end, they didn't follow. Where the publicans and harlots who listened to John preached, who believed John, in the end, even though they didn't at first, in the end, they accepted it. It was the conscience of the common people, the common people whom the leaders despised as a mass of sinners, that kept the hierarchy held in check. We're not going to say John's wasn't of God because they're going to stone us. Interesting. Our Lord here shows how superior the unsophisticated common people were in comparison to themselves. The common people who had no mock piety to sustain as a substitute for the true were far more ready to own their sins and repent than were the religious leaders. Jesus said, what think you? Since you were not able to answer the first question, how about this one? And they answered it right. Which one did the will of his father? 
actually the one that went. So they answered rightly. The former, the first one representing the common people who at first said they're not going to go, in the end did go. And the latter, the hierarchy of the Sanhedrin who said, we're in, and in the end, wouldn't follow through. So they answered right, incriminating themselves. Not only the common people, but the worst of them. They had no false piety to trust. They have no false conscience to produce, produced by a false system. They're open sinners, and feeling as such, they're willing to repent and to believe. It's amazing how far they will go and how long they will prop up a false system when to admit would have just been so obvious. But we understand the cost for them was too great. So my title of my message this morning is Teachable or Gullible. You know, there's two sides to the ditch. There are people who um, are teachable. They're blown around with every wind and doctrine. Any new thing that comes along, they grab onto it. And we're not okay with that. Um, that's the gullible side. But we do want people who are teachable, who are not so staunch that you can't tell them anything. Gullible see, uh, means easily duped or cheated. I would like to turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. And look at the dilemma that God had with a group of people. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 4. We're talking here about people who are just simply stubborn. The obvious truth, and they won't consider it. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, this is Jeremiah 8 verse 4, Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord, shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? These two little phrases are very interesting. Basically, what he's saying is, Normally, when a person falls, they get up. Normally, when a person's going the wrong way, they turn around and go the other way. That's natural. But he asked the question, verse 5, Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard. God said, I'm listening. I listened to what they have to say. But they spake not aright. No man repented him of the wickedness, saying, what have I done? What have I done? You know, I, I, we use this illustration. And it's kind of a humorous, but sometimes we men are a little stubborn. And we're driving down the road. Of course, we don't have it as much anymore because we don't use the map as we use it, but we know where we're going. We are just got just enough pride that we don't want to admit that we don't know where we're going. And sometimes I have went a pretty long ways, the wrong way, and only in the end had to admit, yeah, I think I'm lost or I'm going the wrong way. God was listening and he didn't hear anyone say, what have I done? Where am I going? Where is this going to lead to? They just pushed forward stubbornly in the same direction. Everyone turned to his course as the horse rushes into the battle. I get the picture of uh, the, the soldiers are all lined up with their horses. They're ready for the trumpet to sound and these horses are taught. They're taught well, and they are straining at the bit, just ready to go, and the soldiers holding them in. And as soon as that trumpet goes, off they go, neck to neck, high speed, into the enemy territory. And God's saying, nobody stops and says, where am I going? What am I doing? How did I get here? 
Where is this going to lead to? Nobody's thinking. Nobody's stopping and considering. But they're just like these horses. Verse 7, Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth their appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. And I am amazed how stubborn I can be and we can be and how far we'll go the wrong direction. Many years ago, we had a young man living in our house. He had lived all his life growing up in the city of Lebanon, so his uh, understanding of the bigger world, his world was pretty small. Because of some medical needs, he needed to go to Lancaster. And I don't know how he got to Lancaster, but he didn't get down to Lancaster the easiest way. And so when he was at the doctor's office, he asked the doctor, how do I get home? And the doctor said, told him where the Route 30 is, and said, you only go east a short piece and you'll get to the Route 501, and you go north. Very simple. Well, he gets in his car, and some reason he misses 501, and he drives, and he drives, and he drives, until he was almost out of gas. And so he pulled into the gas pumps along 30, and he fueled up his car with the little bit of money he had, which would get him a few more miles down the road, and guess what he did? He got in the car, and he went the wrong way yet. And he got down to Downingtown, which is about 50 miles I'm guessing from 501 down to Downingtown, and he runs out of fuel, and now he's out of money. So he calls me up, and he says, ran out of fuel. I said, where are you? He says, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you find out? So there was a college student that was walking by, and he asked the college student. The college student says, I don't know. I can't help you. (laughs) Must have been a college student from out of town. I said, well, surely there's somebody around there older. Well, he said, over there's a policeman. I said, go ask the policeman where you are. So when he asked the policeman, he got the name of the town. He got the road name. So I looked on the map, and I saw this road was a big U, I think, off of, well, however it was. But I didn't know which end he was on. So I loaded up the family. We're going to go find them. Well, thankfully, we decided to hit the right side of the two ends of this road, and we found him, and I, in no uncertain terms, told him, now, you're following me, you stay right behind my taillights so that you get home. But is it quite a representation how stubborn we can be? He should have stopped a long time before that and said, hey, I was told it was a short piece. Where is the 501? Probably the thing, though, that amazes me the most, and every time I read it, was this on Balaam. How could Balaam fight what he knew was wrong because of a little bit of money and fight that thing to the end? It's just totally amazing to me. Balak, king of Moab, invites Balaam to come, and he says, I want you to curse the people. So that I'm able to conquer them. This is people that are coming up. And they're just eating the inhabitants of the land like an ox eats the grass. If you could come and curse them, then I would have the power to overcome them. He said, since I know that whom Balaam blesses are blessed and whom Balaam curses are cursed. So he had some kind of a reputation. So the officials of Moab, the Midian... Midian came to see Balaam, and they gave the request, and Balaam said, stay overnight. I'll see what the Lord has to say. And God said, don't go. That's pretty simple. He gets up in the morning, he says, the Lord won't let me go, which already he gave himself away. The Lord won't let me go. I want to go, but I'm not allowed to go. A lot of times we get in trouble because we know what's right. But we really want to do it anyhow. So they go back. Well, Balak was not okay with that. So he sent out more superior officials and sent and offered him stuff or money. God goes, uh, he says, stay overnight. He goes back to God the second time. Big mistake. I mean, the answer was clear. Don't go back. If I tell my children, no, you're not doing that. 
if they come to me again and ask again, I don't think I'd do what God did. I would just simply say no again, but they should know. Balaam should have known. And God said, go, but you're only going to speak what I want you to speak. Which he tried that thing out to the very end, that possibly God will allow him to curse him. So then he goes, he gets on his donkey and he starts going and the donkey sees this angel and moves to the side and he tries again and the angel's there and moves to the side and a third time met in an hour passage where he couldn't pass and he was so bad he beat that thing and then the donkey started talking. Now, when the donkey starts talking, surely you're going to listen. But this man, so stubborn, wanted what he wanted wanted in spite of better knowledge i don't get it again he was told you're going but you're only going to say what i tell you to say when he gets to balak balak sends messengers to him and says where have you been i've been waiting on you what took you so long and so he got balak had a big sacrifice and a big party there and shared meat with the officials that went to get Balak and with our Balaam and with Balaam himself. And so the next morning they go out and they build these seven altars. Balaam asks Balak to build these seven altars, builds the seven altars, a young bull and a young ram and offered one on each one of them. And then Balak says, I'm going alone and you stay here. So he went alone and God told him what to say. And God told him to bless the children of Israel, not curse them. And for some reason, apparently, it must have been the Holy Spirit that would not allow him to say anything different than what God told him to say. Did he think somehow that blessing would turn into a curse? I don't know what he was thinking. That he did it three times. And finally, it says the third time he went back, he used no divination. So it almost seems like he was still playing with this thing. And using some kind of divination that maybe this thing would turn from a blessing to a curse. Again, I just, I, people can be so stubborn. Amazing. And so the third time it says he didn't even use divination because he was persuaded by then that it just doesn't work. He's going to end up saying, and then he gives that beautiful prophecy. Amazing coming from a lips of a stubborn man like this. Balak was so frustrated that it says he clapped his hands. I told you not to bless him. I told you to curse them. One time, I heard all these sirens. We live only a f- across the fields, only about a half a mile. Come out to the Interstate 78 four lane highway, and we heard one siren go down the road after another. After another, and after a while, you're saying, something bad has happened. We only find out later what happened. So there's a trucker, and for some reason, the police wanted to pull him over, and he didn't stop. And so it, they added more police, and more police, and more police, and so till they went by our place, there was a whole band of police with sirens and police trying to catch up to help with this situation. But... They were careful what they were going to do because they noticed that there's a little boy in the truck with the trucker. So what they decided to do, they would start shooting his tires one at a time. So they shot a tire, and the truck went harder. Shot another tire, and the truck went harder. And they shot another one until they had all the tires shot. And he was still trying to drive until he got out to the big hill there before Hamburg, the long upgrade. And finally, his truck did not have the power to go any further with all these flat tires. And so he finally stopped. Police cars all around him as fast as they could go. And he put it in reverse and he backed into the police cars. I'm thinking, you took a really bad situation and you made a really bad situation. If only you would have just said, I was wrong. I'll stop when the police sirens go. But again, in highlights... That humanity left to themselves can be so stubborn. 
And these chief priests and elders who knew who Jesus was, who they knew who John the Baptist was, but it was directly against the system they had going, and it would have cost them their position. And so they fought that thing to the end, that even after Jesus rose from the dead, they still would not admit it, but paid the fellows off. God comes to Cain. Why are you angry? Do you have a right to be angry? And he said, I have all the right in the world to be angry. And God said, sin is crouching at the door. It's like a tiger sitting at the door ready to pounce on you. If you do well, it'll go well for you. If you don't, that's what's going to happen. Obvious. Trouble ahead. Stop. Think, but he pursued it anyhow. It was April in 1846. There was a group of farmers and their families seeking a better as they normally did. They got their wagon trains and everybody sat in their wagons and they headed west. On the proven trail that went from wherever it was, Ohio, the whole way to California. Everything went well until they got to Fort Bridger, Wyoming. And there they found at the place where they stopped for the night a leaflet that was left behind from a man named Lancert Hastings. And this said that, hey. There's a better way, and there's a shorter way. And here's the route. And so, these people, these farmers with all their children, they weren't some salty uh, sailor or some uh, hardy woodsman. They were families. They left the proven trail and started down this unproven trail. They didn't get far at all until they were cutting Their own path. But this was supposed to be better. And it was supposed to be shorter. And they didn't stop. And they pressed on. There was one stretch where they hit desert for a long period. And it really put them behind schedule. This was supposed to get them out there before winter set in. Now, because of the desert and because of chopping their own way, they were way behind schedule. They should have stopped. They should have looked for the old path. But just like so many of us, they bullied on. Surely it's got to get better. They got to the Sierra Nevadas. It was the last obstacle before they get to California. And that year, the snow settled in early. They were in the middle of the mountains, and it snowed to a point where they couldn't keep moving. And up in the mountains, once the snow hits, it probably will stay. So they quick made makeshift um, huts. Farmers made makeshift huts for their family to try to protect them from the weather. But they were basically out of food. They're in the middle of the mountains and they're stranded. And so they decided they'll take some of the strongest men and try to get to Fort Sutter. They're going to walk to Fort Sutter and try to get some food and those kind of things and get some of the provisions back to them. Those 15 men made it to Fort Sutter. They loaded up donkeys with a bunch of food and everything else they needed, and they headed back. But by that time, they get to the mountains. That snow was so deep that the donkeys couldn't even wade through the snow. And so finally, they gave up, left the donkeys behind. They carried what little they could on their back to try to get to these people who were living on the mountains, stranded. They tell me, history says, that some of these people that are living on the mountain went crazy. They couldn't handle it. They just went out of their minds. There were some murders among them. Killed each other. And actually, when someone died, they actually ate them. 
In the end, less than half of them made it to California. A very drastic story of some men who thought they're finding a shortcut. And if only they would have stopped and turned around, they would have been so much better off. But there's something about us that it's hard for us to do that. Someone said it like this, one half of the ills of life come because men, and maybe women, are unwilling to sit down quietly for 30 minutes to think through the possible consequences of their actions. Just push on. I'm amazed at how far people will follow a false prophet. A lady who was a milk customer, and she came to us one time and she said her pastor said that next summer is going to be a drought and so pal it up pal it up and of course i don't put much stock in that and by the way there was no drought it was one of the better years but guess what she still follows him she still follows him i don't know I don't know how much you follow the theories that a lot of us just simply throw out as possible conspiracy theories. But I'm amazed how far people will follow that kind of a thing. So I know quite a lot of people who I'm close to who believe in these possible conspiracy theories. And one of the big ones, okay, so a lot of them you can't prove. You can't prove if they're true or they're false. And as far as they're concerned, they're convinced. But there are some that can be proved. So after 2020 elections, supposedly President Trump was going to get back into office before President Biden was inaugurated. That was, that was clear that's going to happen. And I thought, we'll see. And it never happened. Well, then they said, well, it's going to happen within six weeks or whatever it was. And it didn't happen. Well, then it's going to happen. And they keep going down this road. And I'm like, how long are you going to follow something when it's proven to not be true? Amazing. We're so gullible. We bind the things so easily. Another one was that there's a lot of high ups in Washington who are into all kinds of things that are all undercover, even child trafficking. And that was all going to be exposed soon after the inauguration. President Trump was going to come in, and he was going to expose that whole thing, and there were some high-up officials that were going to be thrown out. It never happened. And so I use these things for these people and say, please stop. Don't continue to follow these theories Because they're just conspiracy theories and they don't happen. And yet, it's one of the things that draw people in. I thought it was interesting. I don't don't follow Fox News. And definitely now I'm not going to follow Fox News. Because they just paid out $787.5 million to settle a defamation lawsuit. They're saying we didn't do anything wrong. They do acknowledge Dominion voting system did not flip the votes to Biden. Even though Fox News repeatedly claimed the election was stolen and Dominion voting system was part of the problem. Fox News specifically admits to stating falsehoods about Dominion voting system. So many of us sit in front of Fox News and we listen to Fox News and we buy it. Here they had to settle out of court, 787.5 million. But they're not willing to apologize to the public because nobody can actually prove. The only way they could really get in trouble is if it could be proven that they had malicious motives behind it. But it's a free world. And this is what free speech is all about. You can even say things that aren't true. 
and get away with it. Recently, a college professor taught a class one of his most invaluable lessons. And hopefully, they'll never forget. How did he do it? His students were constantly talking in, out in class, running down America, denouncing capitalism, and praising communism. According to them, capitalism, capitalism was an evil, is an evil system which exploits the poor and empowers the rich. Of course, communism is the way to go. Because why? All contribute equally, all benefit equally, and there could be no rich and no poor. The professor got sick of it. All their whining and told them he would operate their class for that semester on the communist plan. So they could see whether they really liked the system or not. They all heartily cheered, yay, and agreed on it. All right, he said. We will substitute grades for dollars. I will not grade you individually, but will give everyone the average grade of what the test scores are. Yay, they responded. After the first test, the first tests were average. Everyone got a B. But the students who worked the hardest were unhappy. But those who partied and hardly hit the books were ecstatic. I got a B. I didn't even have to work for it. When the second test came around, the students who had studied little before studied even less this time. And the ones who before had studied hard decided they wanted a free ride too. So they studied little. And the second test averaged a D. Nobody was happy. When the third test rolled around, everyone got it. You guessed it. An F. And they never rose above an F in that semester. But the bickering and the blame placing and the fault finding and the name calling steadily intensified along with the hard feelings and no one would study for the benefit of anyone else. To their great surprise, they failed the course. But they learned a far more important lesson. I think halfway through that semester, I would have saw what's going on. <laughs> I would have went to the, excuse me. <coughs> I would have went to the teacher and said, "Let's change the rules. Let's do something different." On the last day of the class, the professor explained what they experienced was simply the way socialism works. Remember this, he said. When the individual incentive for reward is great, then effort will be great. But when a repressive government system takes all individual expectation of reward away, then no one will exert themselves. But when each one has the incentive to achieve, then ultimately all of society are benefited. And again, I'm amazed. There's United States of America is moving more and more towards socialism when it's proven it don't work. But that's who we are as human beings. A number of years ago, we talked about Canada. Canada's far ahead of us in socialism, especially in medical, um, socialistic medical services. And so we have people coming to the United States for their medical work. Well, I don't suppose they're coming to the United States anymore. We just heard of a lady who has has uh, been doing some tests because there's some things maybe on her lungs that look suspicious, and they're concerned about it. So they ran these tests, and it took forever for the test to come back. I mean, I better not stretch that. It took a long time for the test to come back. And when they came back, they said, well, it really doesn't show us anything other than it looks suspicious. So we're going to have to do some more tests. So the tests are way out here somewhere. And then reading the results is way out there somewhere. I said, she's going to die before our medical system ever gets help to her. And so you know what's happening? 
our people are choosing to go to Mexico. We don't learn. Now that's out there. We'll bring it closer home. The admission of wrong. Just being able to say, I'm wrong. It isn't working out. I'm not going the right way. This isn't going to come out right in the long run. Just to be able to admit. It's hard for me to admit that I'm wrong. It's hard for me to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. But I think it can be such a blessing. Men have stood on their rights so far, went so far down the road that it's almost unreturnable when, if only they could have said, I'm wrong. There was a couple I knew who started worshiping on a Saturday, Sabbath keeping. So I went to him and I said, what makes you start worshiping on the Saturday? We said he'd love to sit down and we have a Bible study. And so we did. And one of the main verses he was standing on was this idea of that Jesus told uh, Moses, told the children of Israel, they're supposed to keep the Sabbath. And it uses the word perpetual. And it says throughout your generations. I said to him, if you're going to keep this idea of keeping the Sabbath perpetually. There's some other things that God said you're supposed to keep perpetually. One of them is they were supposed to keep the fire burning in the tabernacle perpetually. So really, if you're going to stand on that, then we need to resurrect a tabernacle and we need to get the fire back on the altar perpetually. And then I showed him that it's in context throughout your generations. And of course, I believe that, and I don't know what the future is for the Jewish people. I'm not going to make no claims there, but the Jewish nation as a nation ended. And so did this perpetual throughout your generations. It's the only way you can understand it. But what blessed me so much is they immediately stopped keeping the Sabbath and started worshiping on a Sunday. And I was so amazed. You don't see many people who are willing to be so honest. Okay, you're right. And make such a big shift. How do we find that place of being teachable but not gullible? I want, I want to raise my family that they're teachable, that people can speak into their lives. Anyone can speak into their lives. But I don't want them gullible. Where they're driven about with every wind and doctrine. Any new thing comes in, they just jump on it. I don't know what all the answers are for it. But I definitely don't want my children unteachable. And one of the things I believe that God clearly says is to have find that beautiful place of being teachable and not gullible is that he has put us in a community. So in Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about not being driven about with every wind and doctrine, with the slight of men, craftiness, the whole context is about the churches around us. And so whether you're older or whether you're young, especially young people, God has specifically put you in a group. First of all, you're in a home. You have a father and a mother. You have relatives, you have church community. God has put people around us that will help us that we can be teachable and yet not gullible. And so we need to really invite these people into our lives. I need you. I'm not safe on my own. If I am out there on my own, I'm going to make some disasters like these, the Donner Party who went for the West Coast. It's a very well-known history um, of the Donner Party. And the consequences were huge. If only these elders, the hierarchy of the Sanhedrin, could have stopped partway through this whole scenario and said, you know, 
We're going to lose. In the end, we're going to lose. Some of them were smart enough, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who, though they did it secretly, and that tells us that the pressure was on the Jewish system. There was a lot of pressure there. Undercover, um, sneakily, they realized that Jesus was who he said he was. So we need to invite these people into our lives. A couple of weeks ago, I stopped at the little service station there in Bethel, and I was pumping my fuel, and there's a trucking company that parks in the parking lot there, and they are have the Muslim religion. And this trucker got home, and it was time for prayer time, and so he got his rug, and he brought it over to the side of the building in the parking lot, and he spread out his rug, and I just observed it for a little bit as he went through his prayer time. And it hit me that here is somebody who is probably not teachable. Maybe he is. But so many of these are so set in their religion, it's hard to convince them different. And he observed that. Well, the next day at church, lo and behold, there were some visitors there. It was a man and his wife another single and two single men. The two men, the man with his wife and the other one other man were gypsies from Romania who had uh, come over here to America some years ago. One of our young men met him in, I think, uh, one of the stores in Lebanon and had a conversation with him, invite him to church. The third man, I found out, was a worker for these two. He was a Muslim. They were there for the service. After the service, we had a self-fellowship meal, and I sat with them, and we had a very interesting, lively conversation. These two Romanians were uh, Christians, and they knew what they believed, and they believed it. And apparently, they had quite a bit of a conversation with this Muslim co-worker uh, before. But right there at the table, they started this argument back and forth that the Muslim man said, Allah is the same as your God. And this Romanian, this Christian said, no, 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 it's not the same. And so they were going back and forth. And so I had opportunity to talk with the Muslim man and uh, shared with him why we believe in Jesus, the resurrection, and some of those things. But I walked away from that so sad because here you have someone that's so rooted in their religion that it almost seems hopeless. I know it isn't hopeless. And so one of the things that as we think about teachable versus gullible, we really need to put a lot of prayer into this. And I really think we need to be praying for the false religions around us. That somehow God would open up their hearts. There's one leadership seminar uh, in uh, Indiana. I was preaching, and we stayed at one of the preacher's houses from Bern. And, of course, all the other preachers stayed there. And then there were a few others. And then there's one young man. I don't even know his name anywhere. I don't even know where he'd come from. But he sat with all these experienced men. And he talked right over top of them. He had all the answers. And I'm sitting there and I'm like totally floored that he has the audacity to speak like he is to these men who have a lot more experience than he does. And so it didn't go nowhere. And I just remember, um, what is his name, just kind of shaking his head and. Later on that day, I said to him, I said, young man, you've got a lesson to learn. The lesson you have to learn is that when you're around men of wisdom, you need to listen. You don't have all the answers. Oh, he said, is that why God gave me one mouth and two ears? I says, amen. You got it. He was so right. He was so sure of himself. He was so completely sure of himself that he would take men like David Robertson 
and some of the men like John D. Martin and whoever else was there. And he was trying to teach them. Somehow we need to we need to find that place of being teachable, but not gullible. Psalms 32, 9 says, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. The design of this exhortation is to direct men how to behave under the instructions given, not as brutes, which have no rational faculties, but as men, that they should not show themselves thoughtless, stupid, unteachable as these animals, or worse than they, nor stubborn and obstinate, refractory and untractable, resolving not to be taught, stopping the ear, pulling away the shoulder, nor ill-natured and mischievous, not only hating instruction, casting away the law of the Lord, but kicking and spurning at it and persecuting such who undertake to instruct them as these creatures sometimes attempt to throw their riders and not only throw them, but when down, kick them. And so let's, can we make just a commitment to just being honest and at being willing to give admission? There's a lot of things we could talk about. There's even some things that are not sin. You know, like lifestyle and eating habits and those kind of things. We can do those things and we know something is not good for us. And I believe there's a place for some of that. But to, to like the one gentleman that we knew, he thought water would make him heavy. And so he drank soft drink by the liter bottles. Just kind of messed up. Uh, it's going to get him in trouble. It has gotten him in trouble. You know, something so simple. And here's my problem. For a farmer to wear a dust mask or hearing protection, I never used hearing protection, and now I got hearing aids. I was at the specialist before I got the hearing aids to find out if I really would benefit from hearing aids. And the doctor, the specialist, first question he was, is, what's your occupation? He's smart. I said, I'm a dairy farmer. I'm a farmer. He said, you're a farmer. Do you wear hearing protection? I said, no. I said, noise doesn't hurt my ears. He gets up out of his seat, and he's walking down the hall, laughing, saying that everyone else could hear it. He says noise doesn't hurt his ears. I was so embarrassed. But now I wish that I would have done a very simple thing. And I'm very thankful my boys wear hearing protection. My family probably asked me for two years to get hearing aids. They would come with these little clippings out of the paper of some sort. $250. Dad, it's only $250. Well, I learned you don't buy those. Because you'll get dissatisfied with them in a hurry. You do end up spending a lot of money for hearing aids if you're going to get good ones. Right, Earl? It costs a lot of money. But I was stubborn. And so I said to my family, I said to my family, okay, I will call the ear, I'll call the specialist. And I was secretly hoping that it would go a half a year. You know how busy they are? He said, I can get you in next week. And I wasn't ready for that. We tend to be so stubborn instead of just admitting. Someone comes to us and comes to me and says, Leonard, what you're doing isn't going to work out. I have a choice. I can say none of your business. I can say I know what I'm doing. I can say, I have other advice. But would I take those things and ponder them? Is there something to it? We tend not to do that. We see it in marriage. So our world is running from one spouse to the next to the next. And the next generation gets up, grows up, and they do the same thing. And the next one grows up, and they do the same thing. We continue to follow this cycle when the Bible's clear. 
if you're going to find the fullest fulfillment in marriage, it's one spouse till death doeth part. But we think we're better. And the list could go on. And I'm not going to make any more practical examples. But just to throw out to us today, especially myself, somehow to be teachable, but not gullible. Not sit where these fellows did. They knew who John was. They knew who Jesus was. It was a simple decision to say, I lose. I give up. I'm going to follow Jesus. But they stubbornly held on. Some of them stubbornly held on. That when Jesus rode from the grave, they said, look, I'm going to pay you off the lie. Amazing. So God help us. Let's, uh, could we stand together for a closing word of prayer? Thank you, Father, again, for these practical, practical teachings that were preserved for us down through the years. But we know that these were given, as it says, for our learning. Lord, I pray just a simple story happening reveals to us how stubborn humanity can be. And that humanity left to themselves will go a long ways down a wrong road. And so we're asking today, somehow, in your all-wise purpose and wisdom, would you teach us how to be teachable but not gullible? That we would be able to stay on that straight and narrow road. Thank you, Father, for the community that you have put around us. Many of us have benefited from a goodly heritage. And you have the church that surrounds us. Give us, help us to open our ears. Even as Jesus said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Bless this congregation, each one that is here. And may we apply this to our lives as your Holy Spirit prompts us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.